listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Glad you're here today. My name is Ron Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's my opportunity to preach to you this Sunday because nobody else wanted this Sunday. Um, but I said I would take it. And I caved into Mike's Vestember thing. So you can all tell Mike would see him that he wore a vest. And for those wondering why I picked this vest, is I'm going to Lofton right after this to do some card playing. Uh, and I thought I'd just dress for that. This looks a lot better with the t- tuxedo coat, but I thought I'm not going that far for Mike. We're going to be starting a brand new series today. It's going to start from this Sunday all the way through March. It's called the, In the Dust of the Rabbi. We'll be looking at the teachings of Jesus and how it applies to our life. I'll explain exactly what that means, but if you don't have a Bible, if this is your last Sunday of the year and you lost it, well, we, our ushers have Bibles they will let you borrow for today. So if you want a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure we dishumiliate you. Uh, no, it's okay. Even the pastors raise their hands at times. So if you want a Bible, you can have that. And if you really say, I want a Bible for my own. I don't have one. I've lost it. We have Bibles we will give you, but the stipulation is it's for you, not someone else. So when you leave the service today, if you want to go outside to the information desk and say, I want one of those free Bibles that Ron talked about, we will give it to you. But it's for you to read and enjoy and let the Lord bless you as you go through that, because you cannot follow in the dust of the rabbi unless you know his words. So what does this rabbi in the dust really mean? Rabbi is a term that at the time of Jesus meant mighty one or great one. It was something you might use to somebody who was simply good to you. After the destruction of the temple, it came to be used exclusively with biblical teachers. And what they would do is these, these uh, teachers of Jerus- of, in Jerusalem and around the surrounding area had memorized the first five books of the Bible. There's a Genesis through Leviticus. They knew those books backwards and forwards. They knew what everybody said about those particular books. And they would go from village to village and teach those stories and, and explain it to them. And the way they would do that is sometimes villages that had a synagogue would hire a rabbi for a year or two then that rabbi would move on and get another rabbi, which is very much like what the Apostle Paul did in the New Testament. He'd go into a city, he'd go into the synagogue of that city, and he would teach for weeks or months at a time, converting hundreds and hundreds of people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he also found he's becoming uninvited to such places and began preaching to the Gentiles as well. So the idea of the great one is somebody who teaches. And when somebody teaches at your synagogue for a while, he usually captures the hearts and minds of a few very bright young men who wanted to follow that rabbi and teach like he taught and do the things that he would do. If you were going to follow a rabbi, you had to dedicate your life to him 100%. This was not like a student going to university where you'd go take a class and go home. You would begin to live with this rabbi. You would eat what he ate. You would learn to pronunciate the words the way he would pronunciate the words. You would learn even to walk like the rabbi. There's a story told of a rabbi that as a young boy had uh, fallen and had hurt his hip. And for the rest of his life, he walked with a distinct limp. And in the apocryphal literature, we find that 
the, the young students of this rabbi not only learned to talk like him, but walk like him. And so when this rabbi would go from village to village, they could tell it was him because even his students walked like he did. They took on his limp. They took on his pronunciation. They were going to be his followers. And so this idea of the dust of the rabbi is meant, we want you this next few months, really for your life, but emphasizing this next few months, we want you to walk in close proximity to Jesus, like you were one of his disciples. And you're not back 10 or 15 people away, but you're up right next to Christ. Your hand is on his back, so you can hear every word, so you can see the wrinkle of the skin around Jesus' eyes, so you can hear him breathing. You can hear the, 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 the clothing on his arms as he walks and moves. And as the dust of his sandals rises up off the ground, it goes on to you. And you do not shake it off, but leave it linger there so people might see the dust of the rabbi of Jesus on you. That is why this new series is beginning this way, to look at what Jesus is doing. We want you to come and walk with him so closely that the very dust that Jesus kicks up comes on to you and changes your life. And it's a complete dedication. In the book of Matthew, where we're starting off this, uh, this series, we, find, we have this gospel writer of Matthew. You knew he was a tax collector. He wrote this gospel. And I know you've heard it from every pastor, but I want to emphasize it again. Matthew's job was to convince the Jews they had their Messiah. He was not just some great rabbi, but he was the unique rabbi. That's why Matthew starts out with the genealogy. Why? To prove that Jesus had the right bloodline. Why the gifts of the Magi, the kings from the East? Because these were kingly gifts. And what did Jesus teach? Because Jesus taught like no other rabbi. In fact, as Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, it ends this way. You guys remember the first section of verse up here? In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had finished, and that's the Sermon on the Mount, these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, rabbis and their students had a unique way of teaching. They would quote a scripture, and then to interpret it, they would quote two or three other sources from the Talmud, from the Mishnah, whatever they may have happened to have had, to kind of implore, say, this is what it means, this is what it means. Much like if I had preached this verse and given you, so-and-so commentator said this, another commentator says this, and another commentator says that. You might say, well, that's pretty good education. It really is not too bad except that it diminishes what I have to say. It's always about what others have to say. Jesus did not teach that way, and it astounded the people. Jesus said, you have heard it said unto you. And then his phrase, but I say unto you. Jesus quoted no one. He taught the word of God plainly. He taught the word of God in a very positive way and says, this is what I want you to do to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And so we see Jesus teaching in a very different way. And as the sermon is finishing up, he's done teaching now. He's leaving the sermon area on the mound, the, probably by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is now on his way back to Capernaum. Capernaum is where uh, Peter and a number of the disciples lived in Peter's home. Jesus was probably going home to have a nice meal there and to rest and this is what happens on his way back. 
So as Jesus is going from the Sermon on the Mount and people are talking about him, he's like, can you hear this guy teach? He's incredible. The words he said, the way he said it, his compassion. And Matthew now says, not only does he teach like Messiah, he will now act like a Messiah. And this is what happens in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, probably in excess of 2,000 people, easily. And behold, a leopard came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So here we go. Jesus is on his way back to Capernaum, not too far from where he was teaching at, and he's approached by a leper. Now, what is a leper? Leprosy was the cancer of its day. Today, when when somebody says they have cancer, usually... They're rallied around by their family and loved ones. We hold them, we pray for them, we say, we're going to get you a good doctor, we're going to get through this together, don't worry, it's not a death sentence. Leprosy was a death sentence. And rather than your family coming around you and supporting you, your family backed away from you. Because leprosy was very contagious. It was a horrible thing. Not only did you get a death sentence of leprosy, but your family would abandon you. They were required to, by law, the Jewish customs, but it also made perfect sense because if they stayed in your home, everyone in the home would contact leprosy. Leprosy is passed through air, through the mouth, through the breath. Leprosy was a horrible disease. It began with the discoloration of the skin, becoming pink or a little bit boiled and all that. As it would go on, uh, people would lose all their facial hairs. Their eyebrows would fall out. Their eyelashes would fall out. Their hair would fall out. Kind of sounds like chemo, doesn't it? Except there's no hope in this. It's a sign of death and destruction. Their faces often broke out with boils. Their skin came off in chunks. And their appendages, like their fingers, toes, noses, and ears, lost so much feeling that they would be rubbed off because you never knew how, how strong you were rubbing yourself. And they had to wear these, these cloths, these white cloths, white, white, so that you could tell the contrast from the skin to the cloth they had. They had to not only have this leprosy disease, they had to pronounce it wherever they went. A leprosy's job was to hide, to stay away from the common people, not to be touched or cared for at all. So this leprosy would have a covering over his mouth or his hand over his mouth, and he would say constantly, Unclean, 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 making sure you stayed away. The law of Moses said you cannot be more than five feet from a leprous person. So if they were within five feet of you, it was a leper's job to step away from you. He was not to approach you. He was not to be in a crowd, but to be away, to die quietly and stink. Oh yes, leprosies, lepers had a tremendous stink to them because their body was rotting. Not only did their hair fall out, their teeth would fall out. Their voice would become gravelly and all as their larynx began to fill up with them, became stiff and hard with this. 
They were ugly, smelly people, and they were pushed outside of society to die. And a way a family might take care of their fellow, their father or their son, or whether it's a leper or their wife, is that these lepers would live at the junk heap of the city where people would throw out their old food or their old clothes. And lepers would pick through that and find something to cover themselves or to wear. And if a family could and was loving and some were, they would go to this trash heap every night and lay on the ground some food. And when they backed away, the leper would come forward and take that food. I don't know if there were conversations. I don't know if this leper ever saw his wife again or his children Because every time they came to that junkyard, every time they came to that garbage heap, there was a risk involved that maybe they would get leprosy. So this leprosy was not just a a death sentence. It was such a common disease passed among family and friends. And here we see here this leper. What does he do? He breaks some rules. And it says, And behold... Now, that word behold basically means take notice. Matthew's saying, watch this. Be aware of it. Behold. Go back one, guys. We didn't change yet. Can we back it up? We, okay, there we go. Thank you. Oh, we only had forward. Maybe reverse isn't ready yet. He says, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. This leper broke the rules. He violated what he was supposed to have done. We don't know how he heard about the power of Jesus Christ. He could not have been at the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount unless he was at the very back, hiding behind rocks, behind a building, and maybe heard these words. But he recognized that Jesus probably was the Messiah, and he so much wanted to be healed. And by going into the crowd, he risked somebody killing him. That's how you dealt with a leper that was disobedient. You would kill him. And, he's, and, he kneeled, and he knelt down before the Lord saying, Lord, if you will, make me clean. The words here don't say it very clearly, but when you look in the original languages, the idea here is this leper came and laid prostrate before the Lord. He worshipped. My challenge to you in this is how often do you consider worshipping our Lord every day? We come on Sundays and worship, and that's wonderful, outstanding. We should worship. But have you thought about worshiping in your own home when you, when you acknowledge the Lord and when you pray? Have you ever thought about maybe laying prostrate on your floor? Maybe cleaning your floors first and <laughs> laying prostrate if need be. But the idea is this, this, this is what the leopard came. He did not simply come to demand. He came to worship. And he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This leper had no doubt in his mind of who Jesus was. You, Jesus, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will and be clean. In Mark's account of this story, I mean, rather, Luke's account of the story, Luke was the doctor who wrote the, uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, because he was a doctor who said, this man was full of leprosy. He had to be ugly and smelly and terrible when he laid before the Lord, as Luke would say. And Jesus touches him. That was against the law. You don't touch a leper because you're going to get it. And it was a very contagious disease. 
How long had this man gone without a touch, without a hug from a family member, without any kind of somebody just saying hi? Just think of the privilege you had this morning when you did our meeting greet. You got to touch somebody's hand. You got to maybe grab their shoulders and say, glad you're here. You got to know their name. Our leper doesn't have a name. He's simply called a leper. That's all he was. He lost his name and his identity. And Jesus says, I will heal you and be clean. And this healing was so complete. So complete. Jesus then says to him, uh, and immediately the leper was clean, and Jesus said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the, old, to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now we know from the other gospel writers, he doesn't do it. Can you believe it? He's healed and he disobeys the Lord. I think this guy is so overwhelmed with, I'm healed, he wanted to tell everybody, not just the priest. Think of him running down the streets and finding his home and throwing open the door and saying, Honey, look, I'm whole. I'm healed. The children coming around and finally touching their father once again. The wife realizing he's back. But what if he had gone to the priest? What would that have taught the priest? Well, this is the command that Moses gave for a leper that became clean. And apparently there were those moments they did, or at least the hope that they did. We don't know how. There was no cure. In those, in those days, you could die from a toothache or a fever. There were no medications. It was all just a, a very uh, cesspool of illness and disease because of the water and the food and all that. In fact, the average age person in the time of Jesus died about 25. That was the average because of war and pestilence and all kinds. And, you know, then OSHA, people got rocks in their head, you know, terrible things like that. But if this man had gone to the priest because he was a leper, he would not have had any money. He'd have taken this, the most inexpensive gift he probably could have taken, which would have been two small birds, one in each hand. He'd have gone to the priest, and the priest would, you know, have him open his garments and look at him and see that the skin had healed. There were no problems anymore. And then the priest would go to a basin. And the basin was full of water. And then the priest would pick up another pitcher of water and begin pouring it into the basin so that the water in the basin began to overflow the top and run off the sides. You see, in Jesus' day, that was called living water. If water was moving, it was called living water. And the idea was God is always providing and overabundantly flowing along this line. So as the one priest was pouring the water into this basin, the leper would hold the two birds over the basin. Another priest would cut the throat of one of the birds. The leper would turn it upside down and squeeze till all the blood had left this bird and gone into the basin. The basin now was full of water and of blood. The, the leper then takes the other bird, dips it under the blood, under the water, pulls it out, and lets it go. What is that a picture of? Resurrection. Under the blood of Christ, we are made new and set free. Now, the priests may not have seen it that way, but Jesus said, I want them to get the picture. That's what Moses required. The leper never really did that. 
We don't know of any difficulty that came to him. But what a beautiful picture that priest might have seen as Jesus is establishing his thing. And Moses, in that old, old way of offering a gift and thankfulness to God, gave a picture of resurrection along that line. So as this leper is finally cleaned and moved on, in the same journey, in the same day, another experience happens that Matthew wants us to know. So here is a leper who has no standing, no power, not even a name. And now this next experience comes. Next slide, gentlemen. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And, he, and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And he said, to, and, uh, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those following him, truly I tell you, known in Israel has found such a faith. Who is this centurion? Again, no name given, but he was truly of the enemy. He was part of the Roman occupation army of Israel. And Israel hated the Romans tremendously. Because not only did they have to pay taxes, they had to feed the Romans. They had to feed these soldiers and take care of them. And if we read in some of the other, other parts, this centurion knew about the Jewish faith. It actually helped build a synagogue for some of the Jews. While he wasn't a Jew, he was still a Gentile, still outside the camp of Israel, so to speak. He knew who Jesus was. And he sent a delegation and said, my servant is paralyzed. First of all, in Roman law, you could kill a slave with no consequence. If you did, if you had, we had three too many slaves, we can't afford to feed them, then kill them. That's how easy it was. A slave was considered lower than cattle. That's how brutal slavery was. But this centurion, this Roman officer who had over 100 men beneath him, that's what centurion means, 100, probably 80 soldiers, fully armed, probably about 20 officers, all well-trained, and all well-trained from the very suburbs of Israel. The Roman army did not come from Rome. They didn't have that kind of transportation. What the Roman army would do would be sending down trainers, and they would offer to the people in a region, if you join the Roman army, we will clothe you, we will feed you, you will obey us, we will teach you how to fight in our way, we will give you your weapons, we will give you a place to live, and if you live for 20 years in the army, you can retire. And how did a Roman soldier get when he retired? Land. If you look in Israel, if you've ever been there, there's all these different cities that were built by the Greeks and by the Romans. Why were they building all these cities all the time? So the retiring soldiers had a place to live. They were given a home and some land and some animals. That was their reward. So the Roman army did not come from Rome. The training came from Rome. They hired local people. This Roman army probably was made up of some Samaritans. 
Maybe a few renegade Jews, but not many. But the Gentiles around the area, they couldn't find a job, they didn't want a job, but they were taken care of. They were fed, they were clothed, they were trained, and they had to be totally obedient to their masters, to the Roman leadership. That's what the army of Rome was made up of, and that's why they were so hated. In fact, a Roman soldier in the time of the Jesus would never be found walking alone because he would be killed. There were assassins in that day, just like there are terrorists today that will blow themselves up and take out two or three people, so the Romans knew that same thing would happen to them. So whenever the Romans would come out of the fort of San Antonio or from Herodian, wherever they might be camped out, when the Romans came out, they always came out fully armored, with their sword, with their pits, with their shields, whatever they happened to have, and they would always go in groups. So that you want to mess with us, you're going to mess in with 20 guys at the same time. Highly skilled men. They would have no problem killing you. So when you saw the Romans, it was always one of those things where you would back up. You would leave the square. You'd go down a back alley if you need to. Because if you got in their way, they would knock you down and they'd just step on you and keep on going. Because they didn't trust you. Because they knew if you were a good Jew, you wanted them dead. And if you were a good Jew, that's exactly what you wanted. And here comes this Roman centurion, this officer, and says, my servant. What an incredible expression of love for a slave. My servant is paralyzed and suffering terribly. Now, the older I get, the more I recognize sometimes when my back goes out or my legs go out or something goes wrong, aspirin doesn't cut it. Sometimes it's aching pretty bad, and it's hurting. And I'm not sure I'm suffering, but for me, it's suffering. I got bad hangnails, and they hurt terrible. But the servant probably, no doubt, was writhing in pain. There was no pain reliever. And this centurion thought enough of a slave that he wanted Jesus to heal him. And Jesus' willingness to say, I'll go to your home right now, and I'll do it. But the centurion recognized who Jesus really was, and he knew who he really was, and said, no, you're not, it's, I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. But interesting, this soldier recognized real authority. You don't have to go. You say the word, and it'll be done. And he gives an illustration. And if you were one of the rabbi, if you were following our rabbi Jesus, and you had your hand on his back, and you were leaning in, you would see Jesus' jaw drop. And then he would say, he marveled to those that followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Ow! If I'm a disciple of Jesus and I'm following along and I'm doing all the good things, I'm going to be just like Jesus when I grow up. Oh, Jesus, I love it. And Jesus says, that Gentile has more faith than anybody I've seen. Ouch. Ouch. Then the next set of verses. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about Gentiles now. While the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, And to the centurion, Jesus says, go. 
Let it be done for you as I have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The gospel writers, as they compared stories, are very clear to make sure that when, this, when their delegation got back to the centurion, they said it was at that moment that this young man was healed. His paralysis and paralyzing was gone, and he was made well at that time. But notice the condemnation Jesus gives. Oh, you Jews think you've got it made. Because you come from Abraham, you're guaranteed a spot at the table of Abraham. And Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham. Folks, that's you and me. That's you and me. I don't know if I've got any Jewish blood in me, but even if it did, it wouldn't matter. Because I am saved through Christ, who offered the kingdom to all of us. Not just to a certain part of people. It was given to them and they turned their back on it. They wanted more. They wanted a Messiah that would push Rome out of Israel. The Messiah came to push sin out of Israel by changing people's lives. A nameless leopard, a centurion, an enemy soldier. Jesus demonstrated his power over space and time. Long distant healing, real healing. As we go on to the next slide, when, now remember Jesus getting from the, from the mount into Capernaum, now he's at the door of the house, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Not Jesus' mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought him to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. What is so special about Jesus cleaning, uh, healing a mother-in-law? That, that's amazing. You know, I mean, how many of you, your mother-in-law is sick. Oh, let's pray Jesus in here. No, let us suffer a little bit longer, you know. You know, she didn't give, she gave me the sweater for Christmas again, you know. The leper was an outcast. The centurion was an outcast. And ladies, you were considered outcasts. A righteous Jew or Pharisee or Sadducee would pray the Shema every morning. At the end of the Shema, they would say, I thank you, God, that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Now, girls, how would you like to be raised up with a father that prayed that prayer every morning? How would you feel as his daughter? How would you feel as his wife? I'm not saying they would say it in a vengeful, mean way. But day after day, prayer after prayer, somehow women got the idea, you're trash. All you're good for is serving. Don't speak until spoken to. Sit in the back of the synagogue. Don't touch the word of God. Don't quote the word of God. Because I, as a man, am so proud that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Women were definitely second-class citizens. And Peter's mother-in-law was very sick. In those days, you could die from toothaches, from fevers, from bee stings, if you were allergic to them. It was a harrowing place to live. But I want to show you something special here. He touched her hand, and the fever left him, and she rose and began to serve him. There is no recuperation period when Jesus heals. 
There is no, let's get back into shape and start walking to the little treadmill here. We'll get that back moving again. She is healed. So much so that she swings her feet over the side of the bed, puts her, wiggles her feet into her sandals, and gets up and starts making a meal. Well, that's pretty subservient. Why would she make a meal? She, you know, she ought to have a little talk with Jesus about this. That is how women express their giftedness and their love and their appreciation. Don't you know this at the holiday time when you go to your family's home? What does mom do? She stuffs you with food. Eat more. And you're happy because she's cooking it just the way you like it, and your wife's kind of going, I make a better ham than that. Well, I don't think so. I and mean, my mom's best, better. You know, my mom's mashed potatoes are better than your mashed potatoes, and you, pretty soon you're walking home. <laughs> but this woman rises up and immediately goes to prepare the meal. That is the power of Jesus when he heals. It is complete. It is absolute. <coughs> a number of months ago, uh, as we're getting ready to start a branch church, Justin had, uh, you know, which I'm glad he did. He not usually does this, but Justin, our pastor over there, had bought about a dozen books on testimonies of people. He thought he might use those in his messages and all. But Justin had too many books. So he brought three into me and said, Ron, would you read these books and tell me what you think of them? <laughs> I love books. Thank you. And I began reading them. And I remember reading this one story of a, of a, of a woman who was single, who really wanted to get married badly, who really felt that she was incomplete without a husband in her life, who really felt she was made for motherhood and for womanhood, and just really prayed about it. Would go to various services for healing, felt there was sin in her life, and really felt that if God had redeemed her, that he would, he would give her a husband somehow. And she was driven by this in a, in a terrible way. And she tells this story, I think, that kind of fits into something here, as, I, as it came to my mind. This is about in the 80s. So our time, people, this happening during when we were uh, running around here. She went to a healing service in Ontario, California. It was a huge tent. And as she's parking probably a mile away, they're shuttling her in with all these other thousands of people coming to this healing service. She said she just kind of felt this circus atmosphere. Because as she walked by this one display outside the tent, there's these guys that are just muscle guys lifting up these huge weights and working out, their muscles just bulging and all, like mine usually do, uh, but not today. And they're just, and they're, they're all proclaiming, you know, this is, the, this is the kind of power Jesus has over sin. Then the next tent over with some people doing karate. And this is how God can knock down sin in your life. And she's a, all these illustrations and all these illustrations. She just felt it didn't feel right to her. She wanted God's healing in her life. And for her, she finally broke through when she recognized this was man's way of doing things. As she sat in the service, and the, and the preacher began to preach about healing and said, somebody out there has just been healed and I know it. She said about five rows in front of her, some man jumps up and goes, my fillings have gone from silver to gold, silver to gold. And he began opening his mouth and showing everybody. She began to weep because she said, this is the fraud. If Jesus had truly healed him, he wouldn't have any cavities. Who needs gold when you got the real thing? (laughs) She was healed completely. The leper was healed completely. The centurion's servant was healed completely. And as we followed along with our hand on the back of our rabbi, we see Jesus healing completely. 
as Matthew goes on, as it says in the end, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. Can you imagine being in Capernaum that particular day? A moratorium on illness. Crushes were piling up. Bandages thrown away as people were healed completely. The stir, the crowd, the wonder of it all. All right under the noses of the Pharisees and the priests. People were made whole. And because of these healings, the establishment began to hate Jesus. They wanted him killed. You see, with Christ, there's no marginalized people. The no-name leper, the Roman centurion, even the mother-in-law. There's no names given. They're common people. They're you and they're me. And sometimes you might feel like, well, my prayers aren't answered by God. Why? The leper's prayers were answered. The centurion's prayers were answered. And Peter's prayer for his mother-in-law was answered. Jesus answers your prayers and brings healing and all. There are no marginalized people in God's eyes. There are no small people. There are no small problems. As we end this year, for many of you, this ending of the year is the great thing. Thank God it's over with. The thought that crossed my mind when he applauded for the offering was, finally, the last one for this year. As we put it in, you know, 2014 is over with. There's no small people. Because you see, you are children of the king. Think about that. You are children of the king. You are redeemed by a God who loves you, who cares for you. In fact, he came at this, at this incarnate time of Christmas to say, I'm going to be just like you. I'm going to live my life just like you. And I'm going to show you God's love in a personal way. And wherever he went, he touched and changed lives. My challenge to you today is a little bit different maybe than before. I'm not going to offer you any little techniques or acrostic or give you a New Year's resolution. I want to challenge you this year and for the next number of months to follow Jesus, our rabbi, in a unique way. To follow so closely that the very dust from his feet gets on your feet. That his dust gets on your clothes. That you allow anyone or anything to get between you and your Lord this year. You know, when it comes to walking with our rabbi, it's not a matter of finding the time. We make the time. It's not a matter of saying, I need more translations or more Bibles. The best Bible you have is the one in your hand, or the one your mother read to you. Don't worry about perfection. Worry about following. I want you to have the attitude this year, starting today, of saying, when I get up in the morning... I want to make sure I'm walking right next to Jesus. My hand on the back of Jesus, my feet right beside his feet, my ears close to his voice, to read the word of God, to pray the Spirit, teach me the word of God, and to walk. I'm not asking you to run a marathon. I'm simply saying, walk. Walk, one day at a time. Don't wonder, what does God want me to do? It's in the scriptures. Things like being kind, thoughtful, not just good, but acknowledging what Jesus does for you. To pray for those that need healing, to pray for those who need to know of God's precious thing. Do not allow anything to come between you. So I encourage you, 
Read the word. And if you don't have one, we'll give you one. Renew your conversation with God. It is not a special time of prayer. It's just conversation, conversation, like you're walking with your teacher. And get up and do. Get up and do it. This end of the year is a good time to kind of shake off the old, but prepare to add on the new. And my prayer and my encouragement to you is, for the next number of months, we as a church are going to be learning about how to follow the dust of the rabbi. Let it get all over you. Then don't wash it off. Let it get all over you as you learn to follow Christ and to love him more each day. Would you join me in prayer? Rabbi, you have taught us so plainly in these passages that there are no small people, nameless people, diseased people, ostracized people, meaningless people are all so important to you. And Father, for so many of us, we feel exactly the same way. We feel marginalized, unimportant, no status, nothing. But Lord, that's not true in your economy. Everybody is important to you. You died for all of us. All of us. Not just a few of us. So Father, I pray, do not let anything come between you and us. May we follow you touch you, hear your words, and let the dust from your feet fall upon our feet, the blessing of your Spirit fall upon us as we walk with you step by step, day by day. For we want you to be our ultimate rabbi and for us to be your ultimate students, learning and praising you and worshiping you. We commit ourselves anew to today and to the year ahead You've given us the days ahead to do great things for you, Father. May we have the courage to live that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.